we're not going to start in 1 Thessalonians. We're actually going to start in the book of Acts chapter 17. Because before we read this letter that Paul wrote to the church, we want to talk about how Paul started this church and what are the circumstances that brought about this letter. So, if you have not yet read the book of Acts, I would highly encourage you to read the book of Acts like you're watching a movie. The history of the early church. What happened right after Jesus went back to heaven? How did this whole operation get going? Because it's really kind of fun when you find out how churches started. Like just as a quick side note, the history of this church. There were a number of people that used to attend a church over in the, the area of the College of New Jersey. And for a number of reasons, a few of them decided the direction that the leadership was going. They didn't feel like that was where they wanted to be on point with scripture. And so they started a Bible study in someone's living room of which one of our founding families are still here, um, Joe, Rosina, and Darlene. But these believers began to just meet together in a home, and as that study grew, they began to move around. Eventually, they came over to Pennsylvania. They were renting, some of you may remember way back, they used to rent the Gray Nun Academy. And as the church continued to grow, they're like, hey, we should probably try to buy land and some farmer eventually said, hey, I have 12 acres. I want to sell it to a church. And if you're wondering where that is, you're in it. Like we, so the history of how this church started, and you can read more about it online. So as we read the book of Acts, what we want to do is find out how did this church start? And then why did Paul write a letter to them? Because Paul wrote lots of letters. We don't have a lot of those letters. But at the end of his letter to the Thessalonians, he says, read this to all the churches. So, if you were to read the book of Acts, you'd find that this guy named Saul, and for some of you, this is just review, this guy named Saul, who was this, this very zealous Jew, in zeal for God, was going around killing Christians because there's only one God, and they're claiming Jesus is God, and he's not. But he had this radical conversion. The Lord Jesus literally appeared to him, and out of his radical conversion, he was going the fast track this way. He completely turned, and he began to follow Christ, and tell others about him. Early on, Jesus had made it clear that he wanted his message to go to the whole world, but it would start in Jerusalem, and then it would spread. And so if you're reading the book of Acts, you find about halfway through in chapter 13, the Lord said to this guy who, who now called himself Paul, I want you to go and start taking the gospel out from this area and expand it. And so as you're reading the second half of Acts, you'll find that Paul went on three what we call missionary journeys and it's really pretty fun to read especially if you have a study bible and a map because then you could go oh i didn't know that's where philippi was i thought paul was a baker he went to philippi no it's a place right and then i didn't know where thessalonica was i've heard of athens that's still is that still there rome yeah i know where that is so paul went on three missionary journeys on his second journey it begins in chapter 16 he ends up in a town called Philippi, of which, while he has a few converts, he really has a hard time. He gets beaten, arrested, and suffers public humiliation, as well as having his back beaten with rods. And so he's bloodied and bruised and embarrassed and cast out of Philippi. So he leaves Philippi, and he travels on what's called the Ignatius Way, which is Remember, all roads lead to Rome. And you could read on a map how he went through Apollonia. And he comes to this strategic city called Thessalonica, okay? 
Now, the history of Thessalonica, if you've ever read any ancient history, some of you, like George Washington, you know, his dad said, you're going down in history. Some of you, um, when he got his report card, some of you are going, oh, um, I don't know much about ancient history, but you may have heard of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great was a Macedonian. So at the time in the 300s BC, Macedonia became the capital of the world. And Thessalonica became the key city of Macedonia. So Macedonia was a very influential area of which Thessalonica was a very important city. Hence, when Paul comes to Thessalonica, don't picture it like, like a country town. Kind of like when people tell me they're from the country. You know what I always ask them? Well, what do you mean country? Like, are you way out in the sticks? And they're like, well, I'll go, just tell me this. How far is the nearest Walmart? <laughs> 30 miles. You're in the country, right? <laughs> there were Walmarts in Thessalonica. It was a very strategic, influential town. Now, as history went on and the Romans took over, finally defeated the Greeks, there was some mutuality and some tension because now the Romans were a little suspicious of Thessalonica because of the history. Hey, they used to dominate us. So we'll give them some power, some influence, but they need to know who's the boss. And so it's really fun to read some of the history of this city. Now, you do understand that most of Thessalonians were Greeks and Romans. It wasn't like most of them were Jews, right? So consequently, they had all kinds of religions and gods. The Romans and Greeks were what's called polytheists. They believed in a bunch of gods, and they had all kinds of temples and sacrifices and beliefs about gods. But wherever Jews had entered in, when they got enough Jews there, they would build a synagogue. So when Paul went to Philippi, there weren't enough Jews there. They didn't have a synagogue. But when he comes to Thessalonica, it says he went in the synagogue. Now, I want you to understand what's going on here. The Lord Jesus, first of all, when he commissioned the message of salvation, he said, go and tell everybody about me, about how I died and rose again, but go to the Jews first. So there are two reasons why Paul always started in the synagogue. First, to offer the message to the Jews first. But secondly, I want you to think about this. If you're trying to win people to Christ, who do you start with? Godless pagans who hate even thinking about God? Or religious people who may just be, you know, need some further instruction? Because by this time, any Jewish synagogue had a lot of Gentiles who were attending. You're like, wait, why would... Gent because the Gentiles, as they knew about all their gods, would hear about these Jews. What do you mean you only believe in one God? Yeah, we believe there's only one God. And he created the heavens and the earth, and he revealed himself to Moses through the Old Testament scriptures. And so many of the Gentiles were interested in this, and so they started attending Jewish synagogues. Now, understand this. They weren't Christians. Many of them didn't even really convert over to Judaism. They were just fearers of, they're like, I think this God of the Jews is the real God. So Paul would always come into the synagogue. Now, I'm not suggesting that today that's what we should do. When the service is over, let's find the nearest synagogue and go, hey, can I tell anybody about Jesus? We have to be strategic and understand that Paul said, I become all things to all men to try to win some. So for example, if you're going to win people to Christ, it's very unlikely it's because you gave them a track because you preach to somebody at work. It usually comes out of the context of relationships. But what we're going to learn here is a very effective thing that Paul did. Because at the end of the day, if you're going to try to bring somebody to Jesus, which is what he wants us to do,
He said, follow me, I'll make you fishermen. Eventually what you want to do is have them read the Bible. Hopefully read the Bible with you. Hopefully begin to discuss the Bible and the difference between their beliefs and what the Bible says, okay? Some people, you can't even start there. They're not ready for a Bible study. Some people, the thought of bringing them to church, are you kidding me? That's like going from zero to 60. But if and when you have opportunities to start reading the Bible with someone, then you can sort of start exploring some of the themes of the Bible, like God and sin and judgment and salvation. So, fast forward, now we live in a culture, we have Jewish people around here, and most of them do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah that's promised in the Old Testament. So I'll frequently ask them, like my dentist or my doctor, who frequently are Jewish, I'll build a relationship with them, I, and I'll say this to them. Hey, I got a question for you. I know you guys don't believe Jesus is the Messiah, but could you just tell me why? Because people ask me. I'm a Gentile. I don't want to answer for you. I want to be able to say, this is what my Jewish friends say. And most of them, I haven't had a single one of them even be able to tell me why. They just said, we know he isn't. And I said, all right, if you know he isn't, could you tell me how you're going to know who is? Like, what will be the criterion to say, not him, but him? And it is rather unfortunate, but in our culture, not all of them, but many of our Jewish friends are very secular in their beliefs. They don't know what the Old Testament says. They go, I don't know. So I'll say to them something like this. You know, don't you think that's kind of a big gamble? You do know that Jews are expecting a Messiah. You know that it's not Jesus, but you don't know why. And you don't know what to look for if it was. So Paul had a very clever, and this is a great thing to do. When he would go into the synagogues, he wouldn't say, hey, God loves you and Jesus died for you. He would say, let's take a Bible and see what it says about the Messiah. And he wouldn't even mention Jesus at first. So let's watch this. This is pretty cool. He says, now, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Now, this is not a little synagogue. This is a big synagogue. There's a lot of people there. And we're going to find there was a lot of Gentiles. And prominent, wealthy, important people of Thessalonica were attending the synagogue. And it said, according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Now, again, knowing background is important. It's helpful to understand the Bible. You're like, wait a minute. So he just walked in there. How did he get the right? Like, don't do this. Don't walk into your f local synagogue and go, I want to talk about the Bible, right? Because you're going to get the boot. But back then, if a person came into the synagogue who demonstrated that he had some qualifications, like a rabbi, which they even had a robe for that, they would see somebody like that and say, do you want to give any word? And so Paul came in. He didn't just go, everybody listen up. But somehow he was invited because the Jews would have the scrolls and they would read from the scripture. And so Paul says to them, listen, I want us to talk about the Messiah. It says, so for three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. He said, folks, let's talk about what the Old Testament teaches about the Messiah. And I'm sure they were like, yeah, this is really cool. The Gentiles are like, yeah, teach me more. The Jews are like, yeah. So Paul goes, point number one. The Old Testament teaches that the Messiah is going to suffer. So let's look at verse 3. It says, he was explaining and giving evidence that the Messiah. Now, when it says Christ here, that's not Jesus' last name. So Paul wasn't going, oh man, Christ died. For no. All he's saying is, what does the Bible say of the Messiah? 
the Messiah had to suffer and rise again from the dead. Now, now think about what he's doing. He goes, let's start with this. The Messiah is the son of David, right? They're like, yeah, God told King David that one day one of his descendants will be king forever. We're waiting for the son of David. And he goes, yeah, but you do know, right, that the Old Testament says the Messiah is going to suffer. And I suppose some of them are like, you sure about that? And Paul would say, well, let's, let's look in the scrolls here. Grab the scroll of Isaiah. So he opens to Isaiah 53, and, and he begins to read. He grew up before him like a tender shoot out of the root of David. He was despised and rejected of man, a man of sorrows. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. All of us like sheep have gone astray, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. It pleased the Lord to crush him and bruise him. Who's this talking about? He's talking about the Messiah. Okay, Messiah is going to suffer for our sins. He's not given any names yet. Everybody on board with that, okay? So this is one of the reasons why I believe the Bible is the Word of God. Anybody can say, my, my book's the Word of God. But there were 300 predictions about Jesus made in the Old Testament. Do the math. Tell me who's going to win the Super Bowl next year. Do 300 Super Bowls and get them all right. And I might go, hey, you're different from... So these Old Testament predictions about the suffering of the Messiah. But then Paul says, but that's not it. The Old Testament also says that Messiah will rise from the dead. Where are you getting that from, Mac? Paul says, well, let's think about this. God told David one of his descendants would be the Messiah king forever. Forever. People don't live forever. So David began to do the math. If he's going to live forever, that must mean that the Messiah will have to rise again after he dies. How could he reign forever? You're like, you're making that up, Tom. No, I'm not. So when David wrote the Psalms led by the Holy Spirit, in one Psalm he said this, I bless you, Lord, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades and you won't allow the Holy One to undergo decay. He predicted that the Messiah would not stay in the grave and decay. And so the apostles picked up on that. Acts chapter 2, Peter quoted that. So, so Paul's going, look here. It says Messiah will rise from the dead, right? And so he goes, everybody on board? Messiah is going to come, see to David, die on the cross as a sacrifice, just like the Old Testament lamb, pay the penalty of our sin, and then rise from the dead. And they're all going, yeah. And he goes, ready? And he pulls back the curtain. He goes, Jesus is the Messiah. Look what it says. He explained that the Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead. And then he said, this Jesus, whom I'm proclaiming to you, he's the Messiah. Now, while we might think everybody said, I'm on board then. You and I both know that you can show somebody something as plain as day from the Bible, and they have no answer, but they still aren't convinced. I'm, I, that's not what I believe, right? So, let's look at the reaction. It says some of them were persuaded. Now, Paul's only there for three weeks. Some of them were persuaded. Now, what does that mean, they were persuaded? They began to go, you know, I think this guy's right. I mean, each family, imagine a husband and wife going home and the wife goes, you know, I think he might be right. And the husband goes, that's not what we believe. Right? And some of you are going, that's exactly what my home life is like. Right? So, so when they became persuaded, now let's, let's do the math. What's going to happen? Some of them are going, well, then we need to start our own community of followers of the Messiah that Jesus is the Messiah. 
And it wasn't like there was only a couple people. It says some of them were persuaded, and that would be the Jews, but it says a great multitude of God-fearing Greeks, like a whole bunch of the Gentiles were going, I think the guy's right. Okay? Now, what are the Jews thinking at this point? Wait, we're losing control here, man. These people come, these Gentiles, we worked hard to get them into, and they support us. We take up offerings. If they leave, I don't like it. So it didn't take long for them to go, we got to get this guy out of here. We got to rub him out. We got to, he's stirring things up. So look at verse four. It says, even a number of leading women, there were prominent, powerful women who had influential authority in Thessalonica, right? And they're going, I, I think Paul's, I believe Jesus is a Messiah. Paul starts baptizing them. Well, look at verse five. But the Jews becoming jealous. Who were they jealous of? They're losing their promise. They're losing their authority. It's the same way the Jews were when Jesus came. If we don't get rid of this guy, he's stirring things up. We're going to lose our influence. So what did they do? Well, there wasn't, they, they couldn't just kill him. So look what they did. It says, they took some wicked men from the marketplace and formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. Now, you're like, how would they do that? Well, every city has thugs. People got too much time on their hands. People of ill repute who will do anything for a couple bucks. And so they went and found some thugs and just said, hey, man, you want to make some money? Just go beat these guys up. You're like, wow, this is kind of cool. This is like watching. I see shows like this all the time, right? So keep reading. They came upon the house of Jason. You go, who's Jason? Well, at this point, we don't know right? But what they did know is that this guy, Paul, and his buddy Silas were staying at Jason's house. So after paying them, the thugs, go beat them up. Well, where are we going to find him? Here's his picture. I show him on this iPhone. And that's where he's staying. So they beat on Jason's door. And Jason's like, yo, there's all these people. Where is he? Where? And he's like, what are you talking about? Where's that guy, Paul? And thank God, Paul didn't happen to be home at the time. Maybe he was at Chick-fil-A or something, because that's clean. He wouldn't have been having pork or ham, right? So keep reading. It says, when they did not find him, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities. So, so now they're mad, and they drag Jason out of his own house, and they go, we're taking you to court. It's not like we have here where, um, well, I had to send someone to get a, to sign a certified letter, and we have an appointment for... Um, uh, we're going to sit before Judge O'Reilly next week. They just dragged the guy, trying to beat him to death. But they weren't stupid. They knew that if, if the Romans are in charge here. We can't take matters into our own hands. But we know that the Romans, they're suspicious of us anyway. They, 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 they know Caesar's the boss. If some guy says Caesar ain't the boss, we got him. So they dragged Jason, who I'm assuming by now is a Christian, it says, and some brethren before the authorities shouting, these men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason welcomed them into their house. And they act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another King Jesus. Wow, what just happened? So now these Roman authorities are listening to the case going, hmm. So you're saying these guys are teaching people not to worship Caesar? Yeah. 
Now, what's an interesting phrase here when it says they turn the world upside, or it says they, they, um, I'm losing my place here. What did they say about the world? Oh, they upset the world. The Greek phrase here is they turn the world upside down. Now, that's pretty crazy to think about, right? That early Christianity was just a little band of people, right? Turn the world upside down. But I heard an interesting quote once. Some preacher years ago said this. He goes, the reality is, from the perspective of the world, becoming a Christian is turning it upside down. But what you're really doing is you're turning them right side up. So if, if I could give you a visual aid, remember weebles that wobble and they don't fall down, right? It's kind of weird to think of people walking around with their head down, upside down, right? But that's what the Bible teaches about humanity, that when it comes to a real view of what's going on in this world, most people are upside down. They're disconnected from God. They don't feel upside down because that's their norm, right? But they're upside down. And when you come to Jesus, to unbelievers, you're like, what just happened? You're turning us. No, I actually got turned around. I finally found the meaning of life. It's Jesus, right? Well, you and I both know that when you turn to Jesus, people around you don't always celebrate that, right? Like, I, I almost think it's funny how many people say to me, Pastor Tom, I lost a lot of friends since I became a Christian. And I go, let's examine the definition of the word friend, okay? Because if you became a Christian, you started following Jesus, and, and your friends don't like you anymore, and your friends don't want to be around you, or your family members are making fun of you, they weren't really your friends. It might be better to come up with a new term for them. They were your sin companions, or to, to, to make it even more maybe an illustration, they were other crabs in the basket. You're like, what do you mean by that? Anybody ever been crabbing? <clears throat> Catch your live crabs, you throw them in a basket. At some point, they start to pile on each other, and they're trying to get out of the basket, right? Now, you would think if crab's brain was a little bit bigger than a BB, that they would go, let's work together. Maybe we can help somebody get out, and he can go call mighty king crab and come and rescue us. But if one crab starts to work his way out of the basket, the other crabs don't go, you can do it. They don't clack for him, do this, do that. What do they do? They yank him back into the basket. And that's what sinners do. And maybe some of you get this, right? People do not get excited when they see a crab come out of the basket. There's two reasons. Number one, because you remind them that that the basket is doomed. But the second reason is you remind them of Jesus. And Jesus already covered this. He said, listen, if you're going to follow me, the world's going to hate you. Here's why they hate me, because I talk about evil, and I tell them that they're evil, but I'll forgive them. So, if you're going to follow me, they're going to hate you because they hate me. Don't take it personal. Thankfully, as 21st century Americans, we've outsmarted Jesus. We're like, well, Jesus, I have a better idea. I just witnessed by my life. I'm really nice to people. So no one hates me. Everyone likes me because I'm nice. And Jesus is going, dang, why didn't I think of that? Like, understand this. If we follow Christ and we confess Christ, not everybody's going to like that. And I remember one guy saying to me, he goes, Tom, since I've become a Christian, my life has gotten harder, not easier. Well, you might want to ask this question. Who told you it was going to get easier? 
not even going to name, but there's guys on TV that'll tell you, it's going to be easier, right? Depends on what you mean by easier. But the Bible says, through many tribulations, we'll enter the kingdom of God. So here's a real-life example of people who, number one, this is going to give, Paul's getting kicked out of this town. But secondly, once he left, these Thessalonians were getting beat up. I mean, imagine this. Those who were persuaded said, we're not attending the synagogue anymore. And guess what? We're not going to go to the temple anymore. We're not going to offer sacrifices anymore. We're not going to say Caesar is Lord anymore. And some of these people held prominent positions in public political settings. All of these people met regularly at the temple. It was a social thing. It wasn't just like for religion. So imagine the tension and the trouble. And so these Thessalonians began to get beat up. And so we read that it says... Verse 9, they received a pledge from Jason and they re released them. So apparently, from best we can tell, Jason signed a pledge and put up a bond that said, okay, Paul and Silas will leave. Okay? So when they found Paul and Silas, they go, dude, you got to get out of here, man. So Paul and si Silas, were, if you kept reading, they leave. Okay? But now, Paul and Silas have this tremendous burden hey, we led these people to Christ. They may have been there more than three weeks. We love these people. We know these people are suffering. I have got to find out how they're doing. Paul, call them. You can't. Text them. You can't. Email them. You can't. Go see them. You can't. So what Paul does, we read in Acts, is that Timothy apparently wasn't in the bond, and so he sent Timothy back. And you say, how do you know that? Because we're going to read his letter. You're going to go home and read this letter. You're like, I don't have time. There's no football on today. But it's beautiful out. All right, sometime this week, you're going to read this letter. But you're going to read it with new eyes like, oh, okay, I see the background. So Paul sends Timothy to find out, right? Now you go, why would he do that? Because Paul's already been on missionary journeys. Read the book of Galatians. When he left Galatia, the church loved him. He said, you would have plucked your eyes out for me. A few months later, they hated him. He said, have I become your enemy? See, this is how Satan works. And some of you may be in this dangerous place of saying, I've started to follow Christ, but I, I, I'm not liking the direction this has gone. Jesus said this ahead of time. He said, when the word of God is preached, some people will receive it with joy. Like, this is really cool. I can't wait to tell my family about Jesus. Hey, guys. And then all of a sudden you start going, hey, I lost my job. Or my husband won't talk to me. Or my, my parents are gone. Are you saying our church is wrong? And so a lot of people bail. And Jesus said that. He goes, some people receive the word of God with joy, but when persecution comes, they fall away. So Paul's constant burden wasn't to go, we got 19 more soul scalps. What he wanted to see was true converts who got baptized, assimilated into a local church, and followed Jesus to the end. I can tell you this, the beaches of time are full of people who started out by going, yeah, I'm a Christian. Where are they now? Not everyone who starts the Boston Marathon finishes. So it's not just getting soul scalps. It's helping people to grow and mature and become part of a community and continue to follow Christ 
even when things get tough, right? It's like when the addict first comes home from his rehab, and it's like he's doing great, he's doing great, but what happens when trouble comes? He loses his job, or a family member hates him, or something difficult happens. And so Paul sends Timothy, and he finds out that the Thessalonians love him and are doing well. And as a result of that, he decides to write them the letter of 1 Thessalonians. So, in the first three chapters of this letter, he shares his own pastoral concern for them. Because what the Jews began to do is, after Paul left, is to say, he's not real. He, you should not follow him. Number one, he was just trying to get your money. He was just trying to get a following. He was just trying to take advantage of you. So get on back to the synagogue, right? So when Paul shares his pastoral concern in chapter 1, he goes, I thank God that, you, that, that I look at what happened to you, and I could tell you this, your conversion was real. And then in chapter 2, he goes, and you remember when I was with you, I didn't take a dime from you. I didn't seek praise from you. I had just been beaten up when I got there. And you rehearse in your mind, how did I, I work night and day? I shepherded you. I loved you. And whoever's telling you that you shouldn't listen to me, don't let them deceive you. In fact, in chapter 2, he goes, I thank God that the, when I gave the message to you, he said, you received it not as the word of men, but the word of God. I love that. I love that when someone goes, hey, man, I started reading the Bible, and this is the truth. And they start changing. God's the one that does that. And some of you might not be there yet. Some of you are there. Some of you are like, I'm, I, yeah, I've been there. But we want to keep growing. So as you read this letter this week, one of the things you'll find is Paul also, every single chapter mentions the return of the Lord. Every single chapter. So in chapter 1, he says, you turn to God from idols to wait for his son from heaven right? So as we close this morning, I go, hmm, here we are in the 21st century. Like, those people in that time were expecting Jesus to come any day, right? Now we got 2,000 years behind us gone, yeah. In fact, here's a present-day scenario. A person becomes a new Christian. They're reading the Bible for the first time. They find the word Maranatha in 1 Corinthians 16. Wonder what that means, Maranatha. And they look it up, and they go, you know what Maranatha means? Oh, Lord, come. So the new Christian comes to us, and he goes, hey, do you know what Maranatha is? I just got a Maranatha bumper sticker. I'm listening to Maranatha music. Jesus is coming. Hey, and, and we don't want to dampen their zeal, so we go, yeah, that's right, brother. But in our hearts, we're going, yeah, hang around us. You'll become cynical like we are, right? Like, I find it extremely convicted. I'll be the first one to line up and go, I don't wake up every morning going, Jesus, come back. Oh, I can't wait for you to come back, but I should. That's what God is telling us, that we should be eagerly anticipating the return of Christ. And if we stop doing that, we're confusing his patience with his absence. And so as we work through this book, we're going to be reminded that the Lord is coming. And because he's coming, it should make a big difference in how we leave. How we leave, yeah, leave. You're like, leave. Yeah, it's 1215. <laughs> Subliminal. How we live. So we've, we're going to call this series Walking Worthy While We're Waiting for the Lord. 
Because one of the things Paul says in this letter, he goes, when you were with you, when I was with you, he says, remember how I exhorted you, I pled with you, I, I taught you like a father, I begged you to walk worthy of the God who called you into his kingdom. And that's a big part of what it means to be a Christian, not just to get your hell insurance, but to get into a community and learn how to live a life that makes Jesus look good. That says, I am so grateful for my Savior who hung on the cross that I don't want to continue to live in a way that discredits Christianity. The reason there aren't more Christians in America is because of Christians in America. And we all need to do some soul searching and say, what does it look like in America right now to walk worthy? What does that look like to live a life that exemplifies the gospel? So as we close this morning, one of the things that's really cool about the letter is that Paul says to the Thessalonians, he says, and you became an example to all the other churches. And I think about, okay, my local church, Riverstone, I love this church. I love being a part of it. But what does that look like? We're not in a competition. We're not, we're not going, we're better than that church, okay? We're not in a competition. But not all churches are an example to other churches, right? So it's going to be fun, and I want you to pray with us that all of us, that God will waken us, stir us, change us, so that each one of us goes in light of what God's done for me through the gospel, that each of us in our own personal walk is trying to walk worthy and work together to advance the gospel. And if by the grace of God, we become examples to other churches, right? It's not so we can have a seminar and go, come learn from us the secret. It's so that Jesus gets glory and so that the gospel spreads and that we see revival and that we see more and more boys and girls growing up to love Christ, more and more parents who have a godly Christ-centered marriage, more and more broken people who are coming into this church, as we often say, it's a hospital, more and more Humpty Dumpties who the king's men couldn't put together again, but Jesus can. So wherever you are this morning, Jesus is your answer. Whatever you need, if you're guilty, he supplies pardon. If you're empty, he will satisfy your soul. You say, Pastor, it's too late. You don't understand. I do. Jesus said, no one who comes to me, I'll cast out. So you are not disqualified, okay? Some of you are believers, but you're like, you know, I just kind of been playing the game or riding the fence. Well, he doesn't kick you off the team, but he says, wake up. So let's pray as we begin this series that God will use the book of Thessalonians and some of you could do something radical, like I'm going to start memorizing verses from this, and I'm going to think about these, these things that I'm reading during the week, and I'm going to talk with my family. We might even start a Bible study on this. So would you join me as we close in prayer that the Holy Spirit will use the word to grow us together. Father, thank you so much that the Bible was written to people just like us, sinners, different culture, different context but ultimately sinners who were awakened and called and saved by grace. Thank you for what you're doing at Riverstone. May you awaken and call and save many more people. And those of us whom you have awakened and called, would you use us? Please forgive us for our lukewarmness, our indifference, our lack of thinking about the return of Christ our distractions that cause us to put a million things before our prayers and our relationship with you. 
thank you for your word. May you powerfully change our lives. And as we go home, Lord, may we read your word and may it become life and joy to our souls. And we give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.